This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So what do you think it takes to get into a top-tier university, like a Harvard or a Stanford? Okay, you know, who were they the top in their high school class or were they not? What SATs did they get? 4.5 weighted GPA and 10 APs and leadership and, you know, you cured cancer and wrote a novel. In childhood, you know, the biggest brand name places are demanding a degree of perfection from our kids that they never asked of us when we were coming up. Okay, if this is stressing you out, Julie Lithcott-Hames gets it. She's a former dean of freshmen at Stanford, and she met a lot of stressed-out students and their parents during her decade there. Parents are so concerned about getting our kids to the right place in life, whatever that might be in our own minds. We've decided it's our job to arrive them at that destination. I, the parent, will get you there. And that mindset is changing how parents approach K-12 education. Parents who have in mind, you know, this set of schools for our kid, that brand name approach, that is conspiring to really mess with high school education and now it's trickling down to middle school and even in some places elementary school. Why did my kid get a zero today? Why did they get a B plus yesterday? We think good parenting is to try to control and engineer outcomes for our kids, what we now call overparenting or helicopter parenting, and it harms them. And that's why we have to stop. On the show today, turning kids into grown-ups. Ideas about raising kids, from the way we treat boys and girls differently to the way we help them cope with trauma and adversity and even homework, and how despite our best efforts, we're probably still doing it wrong. And Julie Lithcott-Hames says that part of the problem is overparenting. She says we're not giving kids the tools they need to become independent adults. Here's more from Julie on the TED stage. When we raise kids this way, our kids end up leading a kind of checklisted childhood. And here's what the checklisted childhood looks like. We keep them safe and sound and fed and watered. And then we want to be sure they go to the right schools, but not just that, that they're in the right classes at the right schools, and that they get the right grades in the right classes in the right schools. But not just the grades, the scores. And not just the grades and scores, but the accolades and the awards and the sports and the activities and the leadership. And so because so much is required, we think, well, then, of course, we parents have to argue with every teacher and principal and coach and referee and act like our kids' concierge and personal handler and secretary. And then with our kids, we spend so much time nudging, cajoling, hinting, helping, haggling, nagging, as the case may be, to be sure they're not screwing up, not ruining their future. And in the checklisted childhood, we say we just want them to be happy, But when they come home from school, what we ask about all too often first is their homework and their grades. And they see in our faces that our approval, that our love, that their very worth comes from A's. And then we walk alongside them and offer clucking praise like a trainer at the Westminster Dog Show. coaxing them to just jump a little higher and soar a little farther day after day after day. And when we live right up inside their precious developing minds all the time, like our very own version of the movie, Being John Malkovich, we send our children the message, hey kid, I don't think you can actually achieve any of this without me. So what are some of the long-term consequences of of overparenting? Well, doing that teaches kids that parents will always be there to intervene for you and leaves the kid feeling psychologically bewildered, maybe even incompetent. 
They grow up sort of feeling like I got to have a parent attend my every move. I'm not capable of being a successful fourth grader without my parent kind of doing my homework for me. And I say kind of, but when I go around the country, guy, parents admit to me that they're doing their kids' homework. Hmm. This coddling epidemic really treats kids as if they are an investment, but kids are not an investment. And they must do the work. They must travel their own pathway, make their own choices, fall down a few times, get back up, get stronger as a result of that experience. And that's what we're depriving them of, which is why too many young adults today, and by no means all, are bewildered at the task of being adult. What we now know to be the long-term cost of this is a cost to our kids' mental health and wellness. Hmm. Depression and anxiety are spiking in young adult populations and adolescent populations. And I cite a few studies in my book that correlate an over-involved parenting style with these higher rates of anxiety and depression. We are depriving our kid of developing agency in their own life. Now... Am I saying every kid is hardworking and motivated and doesn't need a parent's involvement or interest in their lives and we should just back off and let go? Hell no. (laughs) That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our kids need us to be a little less obsessed with grades and scores and a whole lot more interested in childhood providing a foundation for their success built on things like love, and chores. <laughs> did I just say chores? Did I just say chores? I really did. Here's why. The longest longitudinal study of humans ever conducted is called the Harvard Grant Study. It found that professional success in life, which is what we want for our kids, that professional success in life comes from having done chores as a kid. And the earlier you started, the better. That a roll up your sleeves and pitch in mindset, a mindset that says, there's some unpleasant work, someone's gotta do it, it might as well be me. A mindset that says, I will contribute my effort to the betterment of the whole, that that's what gets you ahead in the workplace. Now we all know this, you know this. We all know this, and yet, In the checklisted childhood, we absolve our kids of doing the work of chores around the house. And then they end up as young adults in the workplace, still waiting for a checklist. But it doesn't exist. And more importantly, lacking the impulse, the instinct to roll up their sleeves and pitch in and look around and wonder, how can I be useful to my colleagues? How can I anticipate a few steps ahead to what my boss might need? A second very important finding from the Harvard Grant study said that happiness in life comes from love. Not love of work, love of humans. So childhood needs to teach our kids how to love, and they can't love others if they don't first love themselves, and they won't love themselves if we can't offer them unconditional love. They need to know they matter to us as humans, not because of their GPA. You know, Julie, I think a, a lot of us listening to this will hear, you know, part of ourselves in it, right? And, and and hopefully maybe some people won't. But I think every parent to some degree struggles, right? Struggles with with this balance between over-parenting and then being completely hands-off. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's hard to describe over the radio, but I'm drawing a little diagram here mm-hmm. on my notes in my hand. Um, first of all, the people who study parenting say that there's an axis, an XY axis from, you know, very demanding to not demanding on the Y axis and then how responsive we are, not responsive to very responsive to our kids' needs and wants on the X axis. And the authoritative parent that my way or the highway, I don't care because I said so, that's the parent who's highly demanding but not at all responsive to a kid's needs. That's authoritarian, and we don't want to be that. A parent who's very responsive to a kid and not at all demanding, that's the indulgent or permissive parent, you know, who just wants to be the kid's concierge or their best friend. We don't want to be that either. The parent who's not demanding and not responsive is basically completely neglecting their kids, a parent not capable, basically, of doing any parenting. We're supposed to aim for the sweet spot of highly demanding and highly responsive, authoritative parenting. Highly demanding, like authoritarian, but 
also highly responsive to a kid's needs and wants, like the indulgent permissive. It's a sweet spot where we have high expectations, but we also give a darn about them as humans. That's what we're supposed to be aiming for. It's that subtle difference between loving a kid, caring about a kid, creating a culture in the home that homework gets done. We work hard in this family. Effort is what matters. We've, as a Palo Alto parent told me when I was interviewing him for my book, I've taken algebra, he says to his kid. I've been an eighth grader. Now it's your turn. All right, so you're thinking chores and love, that sounds all well and good, but give me a break. The colleges want to see top scores and grades and accolades and awards, and I'm going to tell you, sort (laughs) of. The very biggest brand name schools are asking that of our young adults. But here's the good news. You don't have to go to one of the biggest brand name schools to be happy and successful in life. Happy and successful people went to state school, went to community college, went to a college over here and flunked out. And more importantly, if their childhood has not been lived according to a tyrannical checklist, then when they get to college, whichever one it is, well, they'll have gone there on their own volition capable and ready to thrive there. I have to admit something to you. I've got two kids I mentioned, Sawyer and Avery. They're teenagers. And once upon a time, I think I was treating my Sawyer and Avery like little bonsai trees. (laughs) That I was going to carefully clip and prune and shape into some perfect form of a human that might just be perfect enough to warrant them admission to one of the most highly selective colleges. But I've come to realize after working with thousands of other people's kids (laughs) and raising two kids of my own, my kids aren't bonsai trees. They're wildflowers of an unknown genus and species. And it's my job to provide a nourishing environment to strengthen them through chores and to love them so they can love others and receive love. And the college, the major, the career, that's up to them. My job is not to make them become what I would have them become, but to support them in becoming their glorious selves. Thank you. That's Julie Lithcott-Hames. She's the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. You can find her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about turning kids into grown-ups. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Untuck It. If you're wondering whether your shirt is too long to wear untucked, it probably is. Finding a shirt that looks good untucked has been one of the biggest problems in men's fashion for years. Untuckit.com has solved this problem by making shirts designed to be worn untucked. Untuckit shirts are designed to fall at the perfect length, and the right length means the right look. So visit untuckit.com and use Radio Hour for 20% off because the right shirt will make all the difference. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Oh, and before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about another show that I happen to host. It's called How I Built This. And every week, I speak with founders behind some of the most incredible companies about how they did it. You can find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about turning kids into grown-ups. 
Uh, so Caroline, how did you how did you get to the studio oh, today? I got on my one wheel, which is sort of a gyroscopic electric skateboard, and I skateboarded here. I've seen these things. It looks like a like a a piece of wood on a uh, like a very uh, heavy duty go kart wheel, like a go kart yeah. wheel. Yeah, yeah. And you just yeah. stand on that. It's like a platform. You just stand on that, and like it just goes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Kind of. That's the way it feels. This is Caroline Paul. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a shocker because people see from far away, oh, look, there's a 16-year-old dude coming at me. And, and then they're like, oh, my like, God, no, that's, a, that's a grown it's woman. It's my mom. What? So Caroline used to be a firefighter in San Francisco. And she also wrote a book called The Gutsy Girl, which encourages girls to take risks, to have adventures, and to be, well, gutsy. Because Caroline says all of those things can help girls build confidence and bravery and a sense of independence. From a very, very young age, um, girls are told that it's not their inner resources that are important, it's their outer resources. Everything that really counts to be popular. So the messages are you have to be pretty. Thank you. So you agree? You have to be nice. You think you're really pretty. And you have to be perfect. And give you a princess. And those really kick in at puberty. They have studies that show a female's confidence peaks at nine years old. Wow. Yeah. Now, it's crazy. Like the, def- like the metric of confidence there, I'm, I'm a little unclear on, but what I'm guessing is, because I certainly feel more confident as a human as I'm older, sure. but on some measurements, I see what they're saying. It's confidence to be loud, hmm. to get dirty to have fun, to not care what other people think. And I think under those metrics, yes, we want a nine-year-old girl's mind. Yeah. Meanwhile, boys, we encourage them to play sports and be brave, take risks. Get into trouble for crying out loud. They've now been learning to hone their inner resources. And so we're behind as girls and then as women when we go into the workplace and into our relationships because we haven't been taught that we can rely on our inner resources like boys can. So this is why I really believe that we need to start teaching girls how to push outside their comfort zone. And what you need to do that is bravery. And bravery is not considered a feminine trait in our culture. And that's too bad. It's considered a very masculine trait. But in fact, it's a trait that all kids need. Yeah. When did you first become conscious of this idea that, you know, girls were expected to, I don't know, behave a certain way and and boys were allowed to behave other ways? Well, I honestly, I mean, I became super conscious as an adult because when I was a firefighter, I noticed that people were always surprised when I told them what I did for a living. Hmm. And I guess they'd never seen a female firefighter, mostly. And I was the 15th woman in in a department of 1,500 men. So when I arrived, you know, the men were unsure whether women could do the job. And And I understood why, because if you remember in 1972, Title IX passed, and that was the first time that girls were given equal access to sports which created a whole new generation of girls that were sort of outdoorsy and more physical. And the men that I worked with, their peers were not like that. So I was part of that first generation of of more physical girls. So when I became a firefighter, I knew I could do the job physically, but there were certainly a lot of doubts about it because that wasn't the thing that girls were supposed to do. Caroline Paul picks up the story from the TED stage. Even though I was a 5'10", 150-pound collegiate rower, I knew I still had to prove my strength and fitness. So one day, a call came in for a fire, and sure enough, when my engine crew pulled up, there was black smoke billowing from a building off an alleyway. And I was with a big guy named Skip, and he was on the nozzle, and I was right behind. And it was a typical sort of fire. It was smoky, it was hot, and all of a sudden, there was an explosion. And Skip and I were blown backwards. My mask was knocked sideways. And there was this moment of confusion. 
And then I pick myself up, I grope for the nozzle, and I did what a firefighter was supposed to do. I lunge forward, opened up the water, and I tackled the fire myself. The explosion had been caused by a water heater, so nobody was hurt, and ultimately it was not a big deal. But later, Skip came up to me and said, nice job, Caroline, in this surprise sort of voice. <laughs> And I was confused, because the fire hadn't been difficult physically, so why was he looking at me with something like astonishment? And then it became clear. Skip, who was, by the way, a really nice guy and an excellent firefighter, not only thought that women could not be strong, he thought that they could not be brave either. And he wasn't the only one. Friends, acquaintances, and strangers, men and women, throughout my career, asked me over and over, Caroline, all that fire, all that danger, aren't you scared? Honestly, I never heard a male firefighter ask this. And I became curious. Why wasn't bravery expected of women? I mean, in some ways, yeah, of course I was scared. I mean, I run into burning buildings, but that's not... That's not what we want. I want to talk about why are we fixated on the fact that women are always going to be scared. And I noticed that that would often be a good enough excuse not to do things. Hmm. And it began to occur to me that you know, we are not taking initiative because we're using fear as a reason not to do things. Mm -hmm. So I looked even further back and I watched friends of mine as they spoke to their girls. And I heard a lot, especially when they were outdoors, this cautioning tone of, please don't do that, be careful, no, watch out. And I realized that that has an effect of making girls anxious about what they're doing and risk averse. Yeah. But why? I mean, I mean, yeah, I see even among my, my friends, fathers and mothers who are sort of very open-minded and in their approach to raising kids. But they're just like, oh, wait, no, don't, don't go, be careful, you know, like, right? Right. We have a belief... It's this weird idea that somehow girls are more fragile and mm. less capable. And so we're protecting them if we, we, we stop them from trying something. I mean, they did a, a study on um, emergency room visits, minor emergency room visits on yeah. kids. And yeah. they showed that after an emergency room visit, girls were four times more likely than boys to be warned against doing that huh. activity again. We are confined to a certain role that isn't helping us yeah. at all. And as parents, I think it's our duty to open our girls' lives up. And I really believe that the one of the first things is you have to stop cautioning her and you have to start instilling a paradigm of bravery instead of a paradigm of fear. And that doesn't mean that your girl has to go do risky things. I don't want to injure your kids at all. I just want your girls to push out of their comfort zone. And yeah, will they get injured? Maybe, maybe. Hmm. But will it stop them from getting hurt in much bigger ways later? Yes. Because the things you learn when you skin your knee are so important and they help you when you're a woman trying to lean in, get better pay parity, you know, get respect in your relationship. This all traces back to when you're a little girl. Caroline Paul, she's the author of the book The Gutsy Girl, Escapades for Your Life of Epic Adventure. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about turning kids into grown-ups. And just a quick note here, if you're listening with young kids, you might want to turn down the volume for this part of the show because, well, there's one topic that, frankly, a lot of parents have a really hard time with. Sex. Yeah. You don't have to freak out. Yeah, no, you're right. You're totally right. <laughs> you really don't have to freak out. Yeah, I'm just an uptight NPR host. I mean, I can't do much about it. <laughs> As a collective unit, you guys, it's it's okay. This is Peggy Orenstein. She's an author and researcher, probably best known for her book, Girls and Sex. And it's a pretty eye-opening look at teenage sex culture. 
Peggy spent three years interviewing girls aged 15 to 20 about their experiences. And on the TED stage, she described some of the things she discovered from those conversations. I should probably say right up top that despite the hype, teenagers are not engaging in intercourse more often or at a younger age than they were 25 years ago. They are, however, engaging in other behavior. And when we ignore that, when we label that as not sex, that opens the door to risky behavior and disrespect. That's particularly true of oral sex, which teenagers consider to be less intimate than intercourse. Girls would tell me, it's no big deal, like they'd all read the same instruction manual, at least if boys were on the receiving end. Young women had lots of reasons for participating. It made them feel desired. It was a way to boost social status. Sometimes it was a way to get out of an uncomfortable situation. I heard so many stories that I started asking, who is entitled to engage in an experience? Who is entitled to enjoy it? Who is the primary beneficiary? And how does each partner define good enough? Take the sophomore at the Ivy League college who told me, my grandmother was a firecracker, my mom is a professional, my sister and I are loud, and that's our form of feminine power. She then proceeded to describe her sex life to me, a series of one-off hookups starting when she was 13 that were not especially responsible, not especially reciprocal, and not especially enjoyable. She shrugged. I guess we girls are just socialized to be these docile creatures who don't express our wants or needs. Wait a minute, I replied. Didn't you just tell me what a smart, strong woman you are? She hemmed and hawed. I guess, she finally said, no one told me that that smart, strong image applies to sex. So so when I was a kid, Peggy, my mom gave me um, this book called What's Happening to Me. <laughs> do you know that book? Do you remember that book? I do. And, uh, and it explains, like, what's happening to your body as you go through puberty and stuff. And that was, that was it. Yeah. I don't ever remember having any other conversations with my mom, certainly not my dad, about this. So has anything changed in the interim? Have parents changed in the way that they deal with this? Not a whole lot. People tend to talk to their girls more than their boys, and that's one of the reasons that I've become more interested in talking to boys now, because as little as we talk to girls, we talk to boys less. And I, I feel like we need to develop, and and I think a lot of people have, but you know, we as parents, we haven't really thought about what our own ethics and expectations are in this realm mm. and how we're going to communicate that to our children so that they do have positive encounters, that they do have healthy relationships, that they do have enjoyable times together that are reciprocal and mutual and communicative. What are the consequences that you see when we don't have those conversations with kids? Well, we we basically deny guidance because we don't engage with our kids about this, especially right now. You know, it may be in our generation or the generation before, there was less intense media and the media was less sexualized. But Hmm. if you don't educate your child, the media is going to do it for you. And the messages they are going to get are not good from both mainstream media and porn. So there's a new imperative, I think, on parents that we need to get in there really immediately, like upon birth, and be talking about what appropriate interactions are. Yeah, I mean, the assumption that I make is that technology has, like, put this whole issue on on hyperspeed, right? Because yes. when you were younger, like, you couldn't just get pornography. Like, no. now, any kid with an iPhone has access to it. I mean, it's just a different world that they're exposed to. Right. So what really changed, I mean, yes, internet, yes, broadband. But what really changed was that in 2005, Pornhub came online, which is like the YouTube of porn. And what that meant was that all this porn, you know, anything you can imagine and a lot of things that nobody wants to imagine is now online free. That was the big shift. So a person without a credit card, that is a child, um, can access it. And there's a lot of research. Now, there was a piece of research that I looked at of of 10,000 kids that showed that 60% of them consulted porn in part as sex education. Wow. Even though 75%, you know, knew it was about as realistic as pro wrestling. <laughs> and so if you are not in there having those conversations with your child, they're learning a script. 
you know, we always learn our scripts from the media. And that script, I think, is not the one that we really want our kids picking up on. How does that conversation begin? Um, and when does it begin? Well, w- which part of it? Uh, <laughs> the beginning of Genesis, <laughs> book one. <laughs> okay, I'll get you off the hook. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, when kids are born, we have a tendency to silence for girls all sense of their own pleasure and understanding of their body. So when kids are born, we have a tendency to name all of baby boys' parts. So, you know, at least you'll say, here's your pee-pee. You know, you'll say something, right? Yeah. But with girls, we have a tendency to go from navel to knees. And we leave that whole situation situation in between unnamed. Unnamed. There's no better way to make something unspeakable than not to name it. Then kids go into their puberty education classes, and they learn that boys have erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. And they see that internal diagram of a woman's reproductive system, you know, the one that looks kind of like a steer head? (laughs) (laughs) And it always grays out between the legs. So we never say vulva. We certainly never say clitoris. And then they go into their partnered experience. And we expect that somehow they'll think sex is about them, that they'll be able to articulate their needs, their desires, their limits. It's unrealistic. Uh, Peggy, I know a lot of your, your work is about girls, um, but, but what about boys? What does that culture look like for teenage boys? And, and how, how are parents approaching those conversations with them? I think, truly, culture has shifted dramatically in the last few years in terms of our expectations of boys. And still, they say to me that particularly their fathers don't talk to them. Mm-hmm. You know, at best, they say, don't get a girl pregnant, don't get an STI, and respect women. They said, that's kind of like saying, don't run over any little old ladies. Yeah. And then handing me the keys to the car and telling me to drive. Yeah. I mean, do you know what hooking up means? Uh, yeah, like when two people, uh, like a, get, get a casual encounter. Right. It's ambiguous, right? Okay. right? Yeah. It's not that the hookups are new. Um, it's the idea mm-hmm. that it's become normalized for sex to precede emotional intimacy. Hookup culture is dependent on becoming very, very, very drunk. Hmm. I was talking to a boy um, just a couple days ago who's a sophomore in a college in the Midwest, and he said, you know, I'd like to ask somebody on a date, but it would be a really weird thing to do. And I said, so it's not weird for you, you know, to have nine shots, go up to a stranger and have intercourse with her, but it's weird to ask her on a date. And he said, yeah. When we come back, how early conversations with kids can affect things like consent and even assault. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to the all-new Honda Clarity Plug-In Hybrid. When the battery runs low in your electric car, it's nice to have a backup plan. That's why the Clarity Plug-In Hybrid runs on electric and gas if you need it. Plus, it's packed with a premium interior that comfortably seats five adults, a full-size trunk, and the Honda Sensing suite of advanced safety and driver-assistive technologies. Find out more about the Clarity Plug-In Hybrid at clarity.honda.com. Thanks also to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com NPR. Hey, before we get back to the show, just wanted to let you know that TED Radio Hour has been nominated for a Webby Award. It's kind of like the People's Choice Award for digital content. And just like those awards, you get to vote for us. So please vote. Do it now. It's easy. Go to vote.webbyawards.com and then search for TED Radio Hour and then cast your vote. Vote Vote.webbyawards.com. And thanks. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about turning kids into grown-ups. And just before the break, we were hearing from Peggy Ornstein, author of Girls and Sex, about all those conversations parents want to avoid and how, when that happens, there are real consequences. So, so there's definitely a growing awareness on university campuses about issues of assault and consent, right? Yeah. And it, it seems like there's a, a direct connection between the crisis of consent and non-consent and, and the absence of honest conversations with young people yeah. um, about this stuff when they're much younger. In a lot of ways, guys, I feel like we silo sex over into this separate area as if it's scary and unique. Yeah. And it's not. It's just another way of being a responsible, respectful, ethical human being mm. and interacting with somebody in an appropriate way. So when kids are little, like, you need to ask somebody before you hug them or kiss them or push them. Those are important lessons to just get into children's heads at a very young age. I get a lot of questions from mothers worrying about their boys being falsely accused of assault. Mm -hmm. And what I tend to say to that is, have you had conversations with your son since he was small about sexuality, about his body, about women's bodies, about alcohol, consent, about sexual pleasure, about all these issues. If you have not had multiple conversations with your sons over time, then yes, he is at risk of being accused of sexual assault. And that, frankly, is on you as a parent. Yeah. You know, of course, there's a, there's a, a moral component you know, for why many parents choose not to, in, you know, have these conversations with their kids. But I think there's also a, a, another component uh, of this, um, which is a lot of parents just want their kids to be little for as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I do. And and I guess we have to define, like, why do we think that's a loss of innocence mm. to explain to them basic issues about how their bodies work? Like, you wouldn't think it was a loss of innocence to tell them what their elbow was. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, yeah, it's a good that's point. That's a sort of puritanical idea that we grew up with. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was comparing cultures. And the culture that I really ended up focusing on was the Dutch. And the whole thing with the Dutch kids, with talking to them more, they actually become sexually active later and they have fewer partners than American kids. So, in fact, if what you're trying to do is to allow them to be little kids longer, you got to talk to them more. Consider a survey of 300 randomly chosen girls from a Dutch and an American university, two similar universities, talking about their early experience of sex. The Dutch girls embodied everything we say we want from our girls. They had fewer negative consequences like disease, pregnancy, regret, more positive outcomes like being able to communicate with their partner who they said they knew very well, preparing for the experience responsibly, enjoying themselves. What was their secret? The Dutch girls said that their doctors, teachers, and parents talk to them candidly from an early age about sex, pleasure, and the importance of mutual trust. While American parents tend to frame those conversations entirely in terms of risk and danger, Dutch parents talk about balancing responsibility and joy. I have to tell you, as a parent myself, that hit me hard. As parents teachers, advocates, and activists. We have raised a generation of girls to have a voice, to expect egalitarian treatment in the home, in the classroom, in the workplace. Now it's time to demand that in their personal lives as well. Thank you. That's Peggy Ornstein. Her most recent book is Don't Call Me Princess. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. So up until this point in the show, we've been focusing mostly on issues that parents face in affluent parts of the world. Things like where to send your kids to school or are they getting the best math classes? But in the work she does, psychologist Ala Elkani sees a whole 
different level of challenge. I began、um, visiting refugee camps in 2013、um, in Syria and in Turkey. I was interviewing、uh, mothers and conducting focus groups, asking them how they were coping and what parenting challenges they were facing. Ala works as a consultant to the United Nations on programs that help families fleeing from war zones. Refugee children's mental health through war, conflict, and flight is really strongly influenced by the quality of relationships with parents and primary caregivers. But the challenges and stresses of war and displacement often affect parents' capacity to provide children with the care they need. Today, there are more than 20 million refugees in the world, the highest number since the Second World War. Anala got involved with refugee work back in 2011 when she was a PhD student in the UK. Yeah, at that time in 2011, my children were eight and nine, and I'm originally from Syria. My parents are Syrian, and as a family, as a community, we would kind of gather around the TV and watch these horrifying images of war, of people running, of children screaming and injured. And I began to wonder, as a mother, how do you cope when your children are with you in a war zone?、Hmm. I kept imagining myself in that context and how difficult it might be. Allah picks up the story from the TED stage. We know that arming parents with skills in caring for their children can have a huge effect on their well-being, and we call this parent training. So the question I had. Was could parent training programs be useful for families while they were still in war zones or refugee camps? So I approached my PhD supervisor, and then to my joy, she said, "If that's what you want to do, let's find ways to see if parent programs can be useful for families in these contexts." So I traveled to refugee camps in Syria and in Turkey, and I sat with families and I listened. They told me about the rough, harsh refugee camp conditions. That made it hard to focus on anything but practical chores like collecting clean water. They told me how they watched their children withdraw, the sadness, depression, anger, bedwetting, thumb sucking, fear of loud noises, fear of nightmares, terrifying, terrifying nightmares. These families had been through what we had been watching on the TV. The mothers, almost half of them, were now widows of war. Described how they felt they were coping so badly. They watched their children change, and they had no idea how to help them. They didn't know how to answer their children's questions. When you talk to these parents, I mean, what were they doing? Like, how were they trying to protect their kids from, you know, from this trauma? Very often, the parents were still in survival mode. Their focus was on survival. I need to get to the end of today with my children alive without being harmed. And even when I interviewed them in refugee camps, when they were, you could say, relatively safe, they were almost still in the survival mode.、Hmm. It was so hard for them to shift to back to their usual caring parenting. So that is why. We became so heavily involved in developing resources for families that would inform them on how important their role was now more than ever in better caring for their children. When we think about war and we think about refugees, we don't think of the knock-on effects, the the sort of the downstream effects of war, and really those downstream effects are the effects that they have on children, right?、Mm-hmm, I mean,、mm-hmm. it's those kids who are going to live another fifty, sixty, seventy years. After this war, and remember all of those things, it's going to affect every part of their lives. We need to stop wars, but until we do stop wars, there is so much that we can do to weaken the link between war and psychological difficulties in children and their caregivers. But what we found was that parents were making active attempts at seeking support for their parenting in these refugee areas. And there was nothing. Even doctors in refugee camps didn't have the capacity to spend time with caregivers to give them advice and support that they were looking for. So then we began to think, how could we help these families? The Syrian crisis made it clear how incredibly impossible it would be to reach families on an individual level. How would we reach families at a population level at, in, and low cost? After hours of speaking to NGO workers, 
once suggested a fantastic innovative idea of distributing parenting information leaflets via bread wrappers. Bread wrappers that were being delivered to families in a conflict zone in Syria by humanitarian workers. So that's what we did. The bread wrappers haven't changed at all in their appearance, except for the addition of two pieces of paper. One was a parenting information leaflet that had basic advice and information that normalized to the parent what they might be experiencing and what their child might be experiencing, <coughs> and information on how they could support themselves and their children, such as information like spending time talking to your child, showing them more affection, being more patient with your child. The other piece of paper was a feedback questionnaire, and of course, there was a pen. We managed to distribute 3,000 of these in just one week. What was incredible was we had a 60% response rate. That kind of response rate is fantastic, really highlighting how important these kinds of messages were to families. The families had left hundreds of messages. My favorite has got to be, thank you for not forgetting about us and our children. Ala, what have you learned as a parent, you know, raising two kids in, in an affluent Western country after seeing these kids in refugee camps? I've learned that every child matters. So a couple of months ago, I was in the West Bank, Palestine, and working on implementing a light-touch intervention for families that we had developed in Manchester with colleagues. I came back from the West Bank and just days later, Manchester was shaken by the terrorist attack in the arena here in Manchester. Yeah. I was talking to my neighbor who was telling me about her, her friend who had a young daughter who had been at that concert. And her daughter was showing signs of being highly traumatized. She was terrified. She wasn't sleeping well. She was having nightmares. Then I got thinking, I thought, gosh, the experiences of this girl and her mother are so similar to the experiences of the families I was with just days earlier. So I shared the information that we had developed and implemented in Palestine with this mother. And days later, she called me really emotional and said, this has made such a difference to me and to my daughter. I feel like I'm doing something right. I'm helping my daughter in the right way. So children can be protected by warm, secure parenting. I mean, this is the good news when it comes to the very dark story of children and trauma. Parenting is prevention. Ala Elkani, she's a humanitarian psychologist and research associate at the University of Manchester. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, turning kids into grown-ups. Ideas about the choices parents make for their kids and how those choices can ultimately affect them. So we're going to end the show today with a poem by Sarah Kay about what it would be like to raise a child in a world of happiness, heartache, and everything in between. Here's Sarah Kay reading her poem, If I Should Have a Daughter, from the TED stage. If I should have a daughter... Instead of mom, she's going to call me point B. Because that way she knows that no matter what happens, at least she can always find her way to me. And I'm going to paint the solar systems on the backs of her hands. So she has to learn the entire universe before she can say, oh, I know that like the back of my hand. And she's going to learn that this life will hit you hard, in the face, wait for you to get back up just so it can kick you in the stomach, but getting the wind knocked out of you is the only way to remind your lungs how much they like the taste of air. There is hurt here that cannot be fixed by band-aids or poetry, so the first time she realizes that Wonder Woman isn't coming, I'll make sure she knows she doesn't have to wear the cape all by herself, because no matter how wide you stretch your fingers, your hands will always be too small to catch all the pain you want to heal. Believe me, I've tried. And baby, I'll tell her, don't keep your nose up in the air like that. I know that trick. I've done it a million times. You're just smelling for smoke, so you can follow the trail back to a burning house so you can find the boy who lost everything in the fire to see if you can save him. Or else, find the boy who lit the fire in the first place to see if you can change him. But I know she will anyway, so instead, I'll always keep an extra supply of chocolate and rain boots nearby, because there is no heartbreak that chocolate can't fix. 
Okay, there's a few heartbreaks that chocolate can't fix, but that's what the rain boots are for, because rain will wash away everything if you let it. I want her to look at the world through the underside of a glass-bottom boat, to look through a microscope at the galaxies that exist on the pinpoint of a human mind, because that's the way my mom taught me, that there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, my mama said, when you open your hands to catch and wind up with only blisters and bruises. When you step out of the phone booth and try to fly, and the very people you want to save are the ones standing on your cape. When your boots will fill with rain and you'll be up to your knees in disappointment, and those are the very days you have all the more reason to say thank you. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the way the ocean refuses to stop kissing the shoreline, no matter how many times it's sent away. You will put the wind in winsome lose some. You will put the star in starting over and over. And no matter how many landmines erupt in a minute, be sure your mind lands on the beauty of this funny place called life. And yes, on a scale from one to over-trusting, I am pretty damn naive. But I want her to know that this world is made out of sugar. It can crumble so easily, but don't be afraid to stick your tongue out and taste it. Baby, I'll tell her, remember your mama is a worrier and your papa is a warrior and you are the girl with small hands and big eyes who never stops asking for more. Remember that good things come in threes and so do bad things and Always apologize when you've done something wrong, but don't you ever apologize for the way your eyes refuse to stop shining. Your voice is small, but don't ever stop singing. And when they finally hand you heartache, when they slip war and hatred under your door and offer you handouts on street corners of cynicism and defeat, you tell them that they really ought to meet your mother. Thank you. Sarah Kay, she's a poet and founder and co-director of Project Voice. It's a group that runs poetry workshops in schools and communities around the world. You can see all of her talks at TED.com. The most amazing feeling I feel. Words can't describe the feeling for real. Baby, I paint the sky blue. My greatest creation was you. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Turning Kids into Grownups. This week, if you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Deba Motasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. It's Lulu Miller, and I am back with a new story for Invisibilia. It is about the pleasures. It's just electric. And the dangers. There's just nothing more scary. Of trying to live between two worlds. You can find Invisibilia on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.